I want to give you a background on the December message series that I'll be preaching. I was listening to a Christmas carol recently, and when I heard it, I thought, why is that in the song? That's not in the Christmas story at all in the Bible. So I started doing a little bit of research on some Christmas carols and decided that this month for uh, our Christmas message series, I'm going to preach on a Christmas carol, not meaning the Scrooge story, although don't rule it out for the future. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look at a familiar Christmas carol each week And we're going to see some of the things that they teach us about Christmas, be those messages right or wrong. And yes, I did just say wrong when talking about a Christmas carol. You understand, and you probably don't need me to help you understand, that we learn a lot of things through music. Music is a great teaching tool. For example, the cornerstone of American literacy is built on a French song that dates back to the year 1761 using lyrics that came from a nursery rhyme published in 1806. Did you know that? You say, well, what in the world are you talking about? Well, to to be literate, you must learn your ABCs. And how do children in America learn their ABCs? We rejoice and we celebrate and do cartwheels when a two-year-old will sing the ABC song. Now, the ABC song tune comes from the nursery rhyme, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Some of you are going, really? I didn't know that. So on the way home, you have your wife sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and you sing the ABC song. It is the same tune. And we learn through music. And I'm going to give you some more examples this month. We'll talk about the things that songs have taught us uh, in our culture. But they don't just teach us things like education and our ABCs. They teach us messages that good, bad, or indifferent, we learn from them. And that includes spiritual songs. You need to understand that just because something is a song, just because something is written, doesn't make it true. Or just because something is part of a Christmas tradition, doesn't necessarily mean it's in Scripture. True story. A Sunday school teacher was teaching her class about the baby Jesus in the Christmas season, and she was trying to emphasize to her uh, class of second graders how human the baby Jesus was. And so she talked about uh, the baby Jesus, his hands and his feet and his other bodily features. She talked about the baby Jesus eating and sleeping and cooing and making baby noises and all this stuff. And then she started in and said something about the baby Jesus crying. And a little girl said, no, 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 no. The song says the little Lord Jesus no crying he makes. Well, the little girl is right. Away in a manger says the little Lord Jesus no crying he makes. But you see, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was a normal human being in just about every aspect as every other person was. In fact, he was so normal that his friends and relatives didn't recognize him as the Messiah. You know, we think that he would have done all these things as a kid. And people are going, wow, that kid, he's just really, really different. But he was so normal that his family didn't recognize him as the Messiah. And as a matter of fact, when he started making claims that he was the Messiah, his family members didn't believe him because they saw him as so normal. They're like, well, you can't be because you're one of us. We've seen you grow up. 
And so we learn from music a lot of different messages. So we're going to look at some Christmas carols this month, and we'll talk more about a number of, of myths that we've been taught from our Christmas carols throughout the month. It doesn't mean you stop singing. I'm, I'm not on some campaign to get rid of, you know, uh, heretical Christmas carols or anything. Just thought it'd be an interesting study for us this month. So let's start with the most published Christmas hymn in the 20th century, the most famous, the most popular Christmas hymn in the 20th century. And did you know that this Christmas carol is based on an Old Testament passage celebrating the return, not the birth of Christ? Turn with me to Psalm 98, the book of Psalms, chapter 98. It is this chapter from the Old Testament that inspired Sir Isaac Watts, one of the most prolific uh, Christian hymn writers in, in church history in the year 1719. Hear that, 1719, he wrote a song that he titled, The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. And then it was Lowell Mason who in, in the mid-1800s first arranged and adapted the music of Watts' lyrics using music elements from Handel's Messiah. You're familiar with that, but he used some musical elements put to these lyrics that Watts had written. And the new song came to be known as Joy to the World. We just sang a couple lines where we go, oh, I love that Christmas song. It wasn't written about the birth of Christ at all. It was written about his return. And Psalm 98 is what inspired this song. And it says in, in verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his old holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so this psalm praises God who provided salvation for people. And his salvation was a demonstration of his love. And all the nations could see the love of God because of the salvation that he provided. Look on down in verse 7. It says, let the sea roar and all that fills it and the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And we sang just a few minutes ago, joy to the world the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and heaven and nature sing. What? You were singing it in your head too, I know. But when you read Psalm 98 and then you look at, at those lyrics... Do you see the words leap from the page and go, wow, the, the creation singing and the rivers clapping their hands and, and, the, and the, the, the all of creation crying out and celebrating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. There's this great celebration at the return of Christ. Well, the song says, the Lord has come. What does that word Lord mean? Well, the word Lord uh, in the Greek in the New Testament can be used to describe a master or an owner. If someone was Lord over you, they were your master, you were their servant, you were maybe a slave, uh, they owned you, but you called them and referred to them as Lord. That's one usage of the word Lord in the New Testament. 
But the most common use of the word Lord in the New Testament uh, is translating the Old Testament word for Yahweh, which is the proper name of God. And this reference is used over 600 times in the New Testament. Over 600 times in the New Testament when the word Lord is used, it's translating God's name as a proper name of who he is as Yahweh, God the Father. It's either talking directly of God or it's a term used of Jesus, but still with the same meaning, meaning that Jesus was God. And do you know the first time the word Lord, the term Lord was used to describe Jesus? Luke chapter 1 verse 43 before Jesus was ever even born. Elizabeth, when Mary came to visit her and entered into her presence, Elizabeth said this, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, translating God's proper name, should come to me? Well, obviously, she's referring to the baby that's in her womb. Why would the mother of my Lord come to me? So she's ascribing the title of God to the baby that's in Elizabeth's womb. Now, the second application of the title Lord to Jesus comes in Luke chapter 2 when the angel says to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Part of the Christmas story ascribing this title to Jesus. And so during the Christmas season, we sing this song and we're humbled at the thought of such an important baby being born in such humble and lowly circumstances. To be born and placed in a manger, a feeding trough for angels. Because in our mind, we think, man, if, if a Lord is coming, a master, and he's, he's described as a king in the song that we sing. And it's another title applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Let earth receive her king. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. We think if someone that important is coming, there should be great fanfare. They're going to be born in the palace and there's going to be a parade through the streets and people will rejoice and people will celebrate. And if they don't rejoice and if they don't celebrate, then they should suffer the consequences of that because they're not bowing to this great authority, this Lord, this King that has entered into the world. And so that's what we picture in our mind. And so it's odd for us to think of such humble beginnings. But you know what? Jesus' humble beginning sets the tone for his entire life. He was humble. He was gentle. He was compassionate. He was love incarnate. But you know what Jesus was? Every second of that existence, even before he was born and through his entire life, he was Lord. He was King. He was those things, even though he displayed it in a way different than we may expect. And here's the reality of it. The truth of the song is true. Jesus is Lord. He is King, regardless of how people may have expected him to come. And if people don't receive and recognize Jesus as their Lord, and if they're not willing to submit themselves to him as King, then what happens? Then they suffer the consequences, the eternal consequences of not making that decision in their lives. I love how someone phrased it, and I put the quote in your notes that said, Christ was content with a stable when he was born so that we could have a mansion when we die. So we think about, well, how do we experience that mansion? And the song Joy to the World sings about the blessings that, that Christ comes to bring. Well, the, 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 the song tells us, let every heart prepare him room. And so I want to talk about preparing our hearts, making room for Christ. You see, this baby grew to be a man who said there's only one way to heaven, and that's through him, a relationship with himself. But he also said that uh, we were to be connected with him as a branch is connected to a tree to bear fruit for his kingdom. And he tells us that when we place our faith in him, that he comes and he lives within us and dwells within us in the form of the Holy Spirit. 
And so we speak of every heart preparing him room. The heart is a term that, that in New Testament thought and in ancient times was thought of as the center of our emotion. You know, just who we are, we are driven by our heart. When our heart pursues things, our body often follows that, does it not? And so we talk about every heart preparing him room. It means making room for him in our life at the control center, at the place where we make decisions and we pursue things. And so why would we prepare heart or prepare room in our heart or our life and how would we do that? Well, flip to Matthew chapter 12 for a little lesson on what it looks like for us to make room and prepare our hearts for Christ. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. May seem like a bit of an odd passage uh, at this point, thinking about Christmas season and, and all that's taking place, but a great truth for us to understand preparing our heart and making room for Christ to come and live and dwell within us. Verse 43, Jesus is speaking. And he's giving a warning to this generation who he knows are going to reject him and not receive him uh, as the Savior that he came to be. He says, when the unclean spirit, and he's talking about an unclean, a demonic spirit here, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house, meaning the person from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. So the house looks good. It's in much better shape than when this unclean spirit left. It says, then verse 45, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this generation, Jesus says. It's a warning for that generation to not reject the one who came to live and dwell uh, within them. There's a whole lot in that passage to unpack, but what I want you to see and to emphasize is that the unclean spirit left this person who cleaned up his or her life. Their, their, their life was put in order, it was swept, it was clean, it was organized when this unclean spirit left. So whether it was through their willpower, you know, maybe through a self-help group or, or a support group, whatever the case, this person got things together. But do you see what was missing in this person's life? No one was living in the house. It looked better from the outside. It was swept. It was put in order. But the house was empty. And so this unclean spirit goes and gets other spirits to come back. And then they take back over possession of the house. And then there goes the neighborhood, right? I mean, seven that were worse than, than the person in the, in the first place. The, the, the lesson and the teaching here for us is to invite Christ to take up permanent residence in our lives so that there's no room and nothing else can occupy that control center, that seat of emotion, that, that central part of who you are because Jesus Christ himself lives and dwells there. Now, to be fair, there are times when we will allow unwanted house guests in to, to spend some, to share some space with Christ in our lives as part of our battle with the flesh, and we struggle with those things. But when Christ occupies our lives, we are His, we are secure in Him, and He lives within us, the Bible says. So we should prepare our hearts to make room for Christ to live within us. And how do we do that? Well, we do that simply by letting go. You let go. You can't earn your salvation. You're not good enough to work for your salvation. You can't bargain and barter with God for it. I think sometimes we get into this thing where we try to do a, a we want to buy it on credit. Lord, I promise if, I, if you'll do this in me today, if you'll save me or if you'll do whatever, then Lord, I promise this, that, and the other next week. You know who we sound like when we do that? We sound like Wimpy off of Popeye. 
Some of you all know I'm talking about. Wimpy would always say what? I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Does anybody ever know if Wimpy ever bought a hamburger next week when he got paid on Tuesday? Don't think he ever did. It was always this promise of looking forward. And so many of us work like that in our relationship with God. God, if you'll just do this, I'll be in church next week. I'll pray and I'll do this and I'll do this. And the Lord says, I don't want any of that. I don't need any of that because here's what I know. You're not going to follow through. So it doesn't depend upon us and our work and what we can do. It is totally dependent upon God. He has provided salvation. And the Bible tells us that what we do for God is nothing and can mean nothing for us spiritually. Isaiah 64, 6, uh, which tells us about the righteous deeds that so many people think are their ticket to heaven. Well, I've been a good person and I've done these things. Isaiah 64, 6 says this. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some translations say a filthy rag right there. And so it's like us trying to bargain with God. Hey, God, why don't we work the system out? And here's what I'm willing to offer you, God. I imagine a greasy, oily, nasty shop towel from your garage. You used to check the dipstick on your car and wipe stuff up and go, Lord, if I give you this, can I get salvation in return? Will you come and live and dwell within me? And can I have your unlimited power and blessings and presence in my life? Is that going to work? Would you trade a whole lot for a filthy, dirty shop towel? Not at all. And Isaiah says, all of our righteous deeds, not our bad deeds, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We can't bargain with God in those things. The good news is we don't have to bargain because God has done everything to offer salvation to us. Revelation 3.20 says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That means Christ knocks at our heart's door. And if we open our hearts and let him in, if we let go of our sin and we let go of ourself, he will come in. And the term eat with him describes fellowship and interaction and symbolizes the Lord's Supper that we just celebrated in, in recognizing the sacrifice that Christ has paid for our sins. And I shared this picture uh, when I was in Southeast Asia with, with some of the believers who were over there. This picture is based on, I think you can see most of it there. It may not be great because of our projectors. But it's based on Revelation 3.20 where, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens uh, the door, I will come in with him and eat with him and he with me. But the thing that you may not be able to see on here is that there's no door handle on the outside of that door in that painting. The author wanted a very important point to be communicated to us. And that's that Christ knocks on the door, but we must open our lives. We must open our heart and allow him to come in. Jesus is not going to kick down the door of your life, come in, grab the reins and say, move over. I'm in charge now. No one has ever been dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven against their will. Jesus offers salvation. He did everything to provide it. And we must let go of all that we have and, and our sin and that so easily entangles us and all of these things and receive that gift from him. The Bible calls that repentance, that we turn away from our sin and we turn to God and receive all that he is willing to give us through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure techniques have changed uh, as technology has improved. But for decades, do you know how, how trappers uh, in the jungle would catch monkeys? They would go out on the jungle floor and they would put a, a clear uh, container, a, a, a jar, a bucket or something that they could see through with a skinny neck, like a vase type thing. They would take and they would put this in the jungle floor and they would drop some coins or a button or something shiny in there. And monkeys coming through the, uh, the jungle would see this down in this jar and they would swing down. They would grab this and they would stick their hand down in there and they would grab that thing. 
But then they couldn't get their hand out of that vase because the neck was skinny. And while they're sitting there working on this, trying to you know, see what's going on, these trappers would, would either sneak up behind them and just you know, throw a bag over them and they've caught them because they're so distracted with this that's there. Or if they, they found that they were there, the monkey still wouldn't let go of this. And so it's running around on the jungle floor, not able to get away because it's got this big cumbersome thing now on its hand because it would refuse to let go of this little trinket, this little treasure that it's got right here in the palm of its hand. And so many of us are like that when it comes to our relationship with God, we refuse to let go of our sin. We won't let go of our pride, of our dreams and our hopes. We won't let go of those things so that Christ can, can give us salvation. So he can give us his presence living in our lives so that our hopes and dreams can be his hopes and dreams. And he can use us to accomplish his will and his work in our lives and for the sake of his kingdom. And so I ask you this morning, if you have never received that gift of salvation that we remember in this Christmas season as Christ came, would you be willing to let go of that and receive Christ into your life? To turn away from that sin and turn to God. And you can do that by sincerely praying a prayer similar to this. The words aren't magic, it's the attitude of the heart. But saying, dear God, I know that I have sinned against you. And God, I'm sorry for my sins and I want to turn away from those. And God, I want to turn to you. And I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for me. And so Jesus, today, this morning, this instant, I invite you and ask you, would you come into my life? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you give me that precious gift of eternal life? And Jesus, would you take control of my life? If you will pray a prayer similar to that, just be sincere in your heart. The Bible says that today you can become a child of God. And in just a moment, our pastors will be available. And we would love to walk you through that prayer so that you today could become a child of God. But I would ask those of you who are believers here this morning to evaluate your heart and your life in light of the Christmas carol that we've talked about this morning. The rest of the lyrics in this song talk about praise and rejoicing and celebrating the return of Christ. And it says the Savior reigns. And it says that, that men, our song should employ and we should celebrate and lift up. Our language should exalt Jesus Christ because when he is exalted, he will draw all men to himself. So believer, have you experienced this joy? And is your life a reflection of what God is doing in your life, an opportunity to draw people? people to Jesus Christ. Watts wrote of creation, singing praises to God, heaven and nature sing. And it reminds us, Jesus told us in his ministry that if we didn't cry out in praise and celebrate him, that the rocks and the trees would cry out in praise and recognition of who he was. Don't let creation steal your joy in praising and worshiping God. We are, are the pinnacle of creation with a unique opportunity to tell others of the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Don't let creation rob you from the splendor and majesty of God. Tell others what a difference he's made in your life. They can see it in creation. They can hear it from you in real time. And know that the work that's taking place isn't just in the past. It's continuing and will continue in the future. The song says, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the grounds. Have you allowed things to creep into your life and diminish the joy that you experience in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have things short-circuited the power of God or robbed you of the blessings that are spoken of as we sing in the song? He comes to make the blessings flow. And then the song says, he rules the world with truth, truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his love and the wonders of his love. 
Are you living in the fullness of the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ? Uh, all, all the world one day will surrender to him, but are you surrendering now in your daily life uh, to, to allow him to be the Lord and the king of your life and guide you in all that you do? Are you walking with him in close relationship and communion? If not, then I challenge you today to make those decisions to walk in that relationship with Jesus Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And today he's asking you to prepare your heart by opening your heart and your life and allowing him to be your Lord and King if you've never done that. Or he's saying to believers today, would you let go of everything else and give me that place of authority in my life that I desire and that he so truly deserves.